We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChumbaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hello, and welcome to a new episode of Talking Snooker with Phil Haig and Nick Metcalf. Once again, talking about the game we all love. Yes, we're here. We're now, I'm not going to say deep, but we're significantly into the snooker season. We've had quite a lot of action to watch in the old Championship League. and been some really good stuff, but we'll get back to that later, because you're about to introduce our very special guest. Very much so, Phil. Yeah, a week of action. The 23-24 season uh, very much underway. I, I've really enjoyed watching it as well, actually. Very comforting, I think. Good to have the sport back. And as you say, we will reflect on week one of another marathon season. Uh, later on in this episode but the main focus of this new episode of talking snooker will be on a new book that is delighting snooker fans everywhere indeed it's one of the most ambitious books ever written about this sport and we are very pleased to say its author is alongside phil and i today this man is a lifelong snooker fanatic and a brilliant writer who in the past has tackled subjects as diverse as William Blake and American poetry in the Cold War. We're all very happy that he's now turned his attention to snooker, and we're very much looking forward to him sharing some of his nuggets of wisdom with us on the podcast. We are delighted to say that Brendan Cooper, the author of Deep Pockets, Snooker and the Meaning of Life, joins us on Talking Snooker. Brendan, it's great to see you. How are you? Uh, I'm great, thank you, and thank you very much for having me on, and thank you for that immensely kind introduction, but it is a pleasure and a privilege to be here. How how very kind, sir. It's genuinely smashing to have you on. First question for me and from us, it's obvious your, your lifelong love of the game shines through with every page of this book. How did your love affair with this, uh, this grand old sport start for you? It started early. Uh, I, I do think that um, the the great interests and passions of our lives, they often, they don't always, but they often have their origins in early childhood experience. And that's certainly the case for me with snooker. Uh, I remember being five years old, uh, being in my living room uh, home. And the uh, it was actually a repeat of the, of the 1985 final was on the TV screen. Uh, and I know it was a repeat because because Davis and Taylor was sort of in the corner of the screen, sort of in a, in a box, sort of commenting Riley on on the final moments of the match and and sort of you know teasing each other about it and so on. Um, but it's a memory; it's a really important memory, actually, in my life. Um, not just a memory of snooker, but a memory of of a sort of perfect, cosy homeliness, a feeling of, of safety and contentment at home as a young child and. And so it, it catalyzed something really quite quite profound uh, and significant within me. I've absolutely loved the game ever since then, um, and and have always wanted somewhere at some point to to write about it. And so uh, you know, I've been I feel fortunate to have had that opportunity. 
And the idea for the book, I mean, it's it's an eye-catching title straight away, isn't it? Deep Pockets, Snooker and the Meaning of Life. Where did the idea for, for that come from? Yeah, so I guess the, yeah, the title is, it's a, it's, a, it's a bit of fun, Deep Pockets, but it's also, there's something I, I think about the game of snooker that, for, in, in my view, invites the kind of, the kind of considerations that I've been trying to to take in this book. It's a game that is that is intriguingly slow, especially in relation to the, the sort of texture and the pace of, of contemporary culture. It's a game that's full of subtlety and and mystery of tactical complexity. You know, there are it, there are reasons why Clive James called it chess with balls in that famous phrase. Um, you know, it is a game that that is not just a game of skill, but a game of the mind. Um, so. I felt like the game itself warrants the kind of approach, the kind of angle I was, I was wanting to take with the book, trying to connect it with the world of ideas and and look at the game through the lens of various sort of philosophical concepts and so on. Mm-hmm. And, and how much was that set out when you started or did you go on a sort of a journey and you took in things that you weren't necessarily expecting to cover? Uh, I, I guess a, something of a mixture, fundamentally. Um, a lot of it came quite quickly. A lot of the ideas were fairly clear and obvious once I decided I wanted to take take this approach. You know, thinking in terms of of you know concepts of victory and loss, and then who, the players and, and matches that I wanted to sort of bring into that. So quite a few of the chapters um, uh, were, were were fairly kind of rapidly on board, and that, as I as I went through. Things shifted, um, and and slightly more niche ideas came into interview. For instance, you know, having a chapter on fashion and and snookering dress occurred to me at some point. Now, hang on a second. That that this is really interesting. That you know, the curiosity and eccentricity of this in contemporary sport is something that requires a, a little bit of reflection. Um, so there are chapters like that that actually there are serious elements to it, but it's also quite in some ways a, a sort of more lighthearted um, take on things as well. Um, so something of a mixture, I'd say. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Um, one of the things that you mentioned sort of from the start, really, and something that I think I and we are fascinated by is historically the lack of literature on this subject and the fact that we're not overladen with books. And, you know, we, we would see what we consider as contemporary sports, kind of equivalent sports, certainly in sort of public affection and, you know, just interest that, that have sort of, library fulls of books compared to this sport um how much of that knowledge sort of kept you going with this and I wonder what why you think that might be if you can try and lay it out for us why historically there hasn't been an enormous amount written about this sport that we all love so much yeah it's a very good question uh and it's something that has struck me and frustrated me for a very long time you know following the game and if you look at other sports and it doesn't need to be you know the, the biggest the, the major sports of the world um but slightly more niche what you might describe anyway as more niche sort of sports and pursuits um you find vast libraries of books um of all kinds you know exploring the kind of culture and the history and the ideas surrounding those, those particular games uh, and when you compare snooker with i think anything else it feels like the library is pretty thin um and it's especially pretty thin once you, if you take away the the biographies of players, um, of which there are some wonderful and, and fascinating uh, books out there, but I guess whenever you're reading a biography of a snooker player, you're you're fundamentally following the story of that particular human being, you know, and 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 their life and and the things that have happened to to them. Um, books that are you know historical books on snooker, books that explore the kind of culture of of the game um, and so forth. You really are looking at a very small number uh, in history. I don't exactly know why. Um, you sometimes hear, I think, and it, it's a, an outrageous and, and false claim, but you do sometimes hear people say, oh, snooker doesn't translate particularly well to writing. Uh, they'll make a claim that, well, if you're, you know, uh, you know, Selby made a 63, he missed the blue, Robertson cleared up with a 71. Um, it obviously is true. If you reduce snooker writing simply to that to the sort of the bare facts um, and numbers then it doesn't sound very interesting but that seems to me to miss absolutely everything 
uh, that, that is fascinating and rich about how we might use words in order to describe the game. So um, that was something I was wanting to try to in some way contribute to by writing this book. That makes sense. Um, listen, we encourage everyone to get the book. There are, there are myriad fascinating elements and we'll only be able to cover some of them on, on this on this podcast today. But I I am kind of inter- interested in the, in the pace of the game generally, you know, how snooker is kind of an outlier, which you explore in this fast-paced world. And I think, without putting words in your mouth, you'll tell me and us, you think the slower and more sort of measured pace of this game should maybe be embraced more than it is. I do. I think, I certainly think that it's, although it has at times been perceived as in some way a threat to the game. In fact, I think it's a strength. Uh, and, and it's interesting the, the degree to which it has sort of survived and thrived best in many ways. And it's, you know, the, the world championship is, is an extraordinary phenomenon in 2023 to be happening. Uh, games that are matches that are taking place across multiple days. Uh, these epic narratives, you know, I mean, the semi-finals are perhaps the the kind of zenith of that. We sort of have three days of these games kind of going on and and you know ebbing and flowing, and and it isn't until perhaps the latter stages usually that you have a, any clear sense of who is actually going to win that that match. That all sits quite uneasily with a contemporary culture where we kind of expect instant access to everything. Um, but it's really popular. You look at the viewing figures and it, it, it remains the case that millions of people across the, the country, obviously across the world, when you go in, into the international audience, uh, are watching this and enjoying it. And so um, I think you think of other sports, you think of, you know, cricket is a sport where um, there has been, a lot of attention to the idea that, you know, the five-day test match in some way is under threat. Uh, and the introduction, not just of 2020, but then the 100 more recently, this sense that oh, we need to satisfy a contemporary a- appetite for fast-paced things and for shorter narratives. Um, but I, I think that, that snooker shows something else. It shows that there is also another kind of appetite that we've, that's built into us um, that is an appetite for the epic narrative and for slower, more incremental stories that unfold gradually where small details and turning points and the various kinds are happening across potentially quite a substantial amount of time. Uh, and I think that, that that is within human beings, that that, that desire for those narratives. And, and so I, I think, yeah, that, that, that it's interesting and it shows us something that, that, that snooker survives in the way it does in in a contemporary world that looks like it should be hostile to it. Mm. It just builds up to make the climaxes even bigger, doesn't it? I think the, the recent World Championship showed that so well. Those epic comebacks, especially from Luca against Ronnie and against C, they're made all the more special because you've had a day or two of build-up to do that. You know, if that was just the first session, then it wouldn't work. And it's interesting you mentioned cricket there because I think a lot of it is... Um, what is perceived to be what people want. But actually, test matches are sold out all the time. They sell better than anything. And the World Championships are as popular as anything. So it just seems to be sort of what we think society wants compared to what, you know, it shows that people do like these long, drawn-out things. Yeah, there's definitely an element of that, I think. And I think you're absolutely right. If you think about the that extraordinary comeback uh, from Luca. Um but, you know, it was a long comeback you know, mm-hmm. um, from, from such a kind of extraordinarily sort of, you know, hopeless position. Um, and that made it all more dramatic. If you think about, you know, a couple of years ago, that extraordinary day when both of the world semifinals went to the designing frame. Um, but the drama of that, the drama of, you know, Kyron and Anthony McGill and then, you know, later in the day, Bonnie and, and, and Mark Selby, it all going right down to the wire. The drama was intensified to that, incredible intense pitch because it had taken three days to get to that point so there's something about the way in which these epic narratives the the, the kind of drama that can come from these longer narratives is unique and you can't get it from you know a best of five and I will I know you're a big cricket fan so we'll mention it while we're here because we've all been watching it but that's been exampled in the first two tests this time especially the first test the climax of that with the build-up 
Um, what have you made? Of, this is just a cricket question, but what have you made of the series so far? Uh, I mean, it has been utterly astonishing. Um, <laughs> and the fact that, you know, you know, to have two tests in a row that were as dramatic as that, um, dramatic in different ways, I feel like it would have been a wonderful thing for it to be one all right now. Yeah. Um, because that, it feel, that feels appropriate to the kind of intensity of the drama that we've seen. Um, and obviously it's not, and it's going to be an awful uh, job that England have. I, I, I have quite limited expectations about their capacity to do it. Um, but yeah, exactly as you say, I mean, it's kind of the same point that, that the, the dramatic ending, everything that was happening with Stokes um, yesterday, uh, almost pulling it off, um, everything that was happening in the first test, um, with everything looking, you know, going right down to the wire and it looking like we're going to take the final wickets and then not, you know, if that had only been the sort of culmination of a couple of hours play, you wouldn't be feeling drama. But when it's at the end of five days, um, then suddenly it has this kind of dramatic intensity, intensity. And that's exactly the same with these sort of long, epic snooker matches, I think in particular in the world championships, but really any major final, you feel the same sense of, you know, dramatic culmination across a period of time. Um, and that I think is an important element of the, the drama of snooker. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think it's not exact, obviously, but I think the world championship is probably more closely linked to test cricket than anything else in sport, actually, isn't it? In, in, in many ways, that sort of long form, Day after day of drama, slow burning. But you're being a bit coy. I mean, I think you your cricket views are, are excellent. You very much did tip Australia, didn't you? I think you said it to me and to others before. You said that you thought they were the better side, and and that's not proving that by much. But I think in the key moments that they are kind of proving that because they're delivering really when it counts, and they're big match winners, and maybe turning up more than England's. But what a fascinating series! My goodness me, it's just it's such a funny series. I just have a slight feeling there's a one more quite, kind of big twist to come. I'm not, I saw I saw half seeing and winning in Leeds because it's that sort of series now, and then sort of one up two to play. There's something about the narrative of the, of the way that some, this is unfolding. I know it's not a cricket podcast. Um, <laughs> more's a pity, Phil. You love it, wouldn't you? But uh, yeah, I'm, I'm there on Sunday, so I'll be cheering them on and booing the Aussies. <laughs> well, I mean, it's going to be you know the fact that it's happening in Headingley with what happens to Johnny Bairstow. Uh, you know, the, the crowd is going to be lively, I think. Yeah. <laughs> One of the great understatements. But, but back to your mar- marvellous um, Western Terrace there, lively, Phil. They'll be using other words for that as well, won't they? More dramatic. <laughs> There's going to be some rum old scenes on there. But, we, we, you know, it's quite touching at times. And I think maybe none more so than when you're sort of reflecting on memory and our pasts mm. and that, I would use that word comfort at the top, didn't I, with, with tuning in for the early stages of this new season. I mean, you get into snooker at any time of life. And of course, we, we love people to get into it now if they're 40s, 50s. But for most of us, it's kind of a lifelong thing, I think. And you had that, that you know, that, you know, image of watching it when you were a young boy that you, you convey so brilliantly. And there's that quote from Louis Gluck, isn't there? We look at the world once in childhood, the rest is memory. And that, and, and the way we sort of, Almost not everything, but so much is linked back to those early days. And it gives us all that sort of warm nostalgia. And sometimes, you know, when you look at the game, and maybe I'm being too romantic, it could be 30, 40 years ago. There's that unchanging element, isn't there? Yeah, I think that's true. That The timelessness, I mean, that's some, that's interesting. You know, Snooker's relationship to its own history, I think, is, is a fascinating thing. Um, and... There are a number of different dimensions to that. You can talk about, and, and people have, you know, the the relationship that snooker has to its own apparent zenith in the 1980s uh, when it became this sort of extraordinarily this this sort of central pillar of British culture, um, and the fact that it never is going to kind of reclaim that sort of place in in the in the British imagination. Um, but there is a timelessness to the game. And I think in things like the, the fact that the World Championship has, it's been tweaked um, every now and again, a minor tweak. Um, the the last one I can think of was the, the shift from uh, first to 16 to first to 17 in the semi-finals, which I think... And it's quite minor tweaks, aren't they? Let's be clear. Yeah, exactly. So that was obviously, you know, that, 
Um, and you can see why they did that. But but there's always that hesitancy about about messing around with something that seems to be such a kind of perfect manifestation of the game. Um, and I, I, that relates, I, I mentioned sort of snooker, snooker fashion and snooker dress um, earlier. And that's interesting, too. You know, should should snooker be kind of modernizing itself? Because it is ridiculous that the, the, <laughs> you could say the the fact that, you know, players are kind of, you know, wandering around in black tie, looking like Victorian aristocrats. But but then there's also something about that and the way that it has been that way, not just through the whole history of snooker, but the fact that that actually is inherited from, you know, you can see it in engravings of Victorian billiards matches, you know, that that, that, that was the, um, that what was considered to be the right way for these sort of gentlemanly professionals to dress. Um, and so the, there's snooker's definitely, I guess, like any sport you could say, but it's definitely a game where the, the forces of continuity and change are always pushing against each other. Um, and, you know, so you, you're seeing that that kind of battle and that, that kind of conflict. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure this is even a question, really, but I, I reread because I read the book a few months ago, but I reread a, a couple of chapters just before we came on. And the internationalism one was struck me because of how much it's all changed since you wrote it only very recently. You know, you had a Luca Purcell quote there, but of, of course, now he's world champion. That's all changed. And we're talking about, you know, Yan and Zhao and, you know, they're gone. Um, yeah, I'm not even sure what my question is, really, but it struck me how quickly that chapter has all been thrown into the air. Yeah, uh, well, I, absolutely. And I'm, uh, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned it, actually, because it was a, you know, I, I thought, it, as you can imagine, you know, I, I wrote that chapter and, you know, the book was going to press. And then in December, we know what was emerging as a story. Um, and I included one line at the time. It was quite late in the proofing stage, a, a line just referencing the fact that, you know, this is a, a, a reminder that, in fact, there's the line I think I included in, in the falsehood chapter, which was on, on match fixing, uh, a reminder that this is something that's not going away from the game. But... um but I decided I'm just going to I'm going to leave the, these discussions, the quite optimistic discussions about Yan and uh, about Zhao Xintong as, you know, the, the future or part of the future of international snooker. I'm going to leave that as a testament to, you know, kind of where we were at a particular point. And clearly right now, unfortunately, uh, we're in a rather different position. Uh, and so there's, cert- there's certainly a poignancy for me looking back on on those summaries of of Yan and, and Zhao in particular, uh, and just thinking about the fact that we're in a very, a very different spot, um, and um, and more positively, the fact that we now really excitingly have just seen the you know the first world champion from from mainland Europe, and so uh, in that sense, from a different angle, the internationalism of snooker is kind of entering exciting new territory. Very much so. I, I've written down the name. I don't. It might not mean something to you too it might do it's the journalist alan shipnuck now the reason i've written that down is he's writing a comprehensive story really of live golf and the absolute ruptures it's caused in that sport and i think he he sent off the final draft the day before that announcement came recently of, of the merger so you know <laughs> That that just reminds me of the, the the unlucky timing that authors can sometimes have. I mean, you may have had a little, you know, maybe a few changes, but that that's something that absolutely drastic. And I just, you know, this fast paced world of things changing, that's kind of the the problems you can have. But Brenda, we should say that, of course, you know, we we sort of hinted it already, but every chapter is kind of, um, I guess you'd call it, yeah, a, a life fundamental, and it's they're titled sort of time disorder, genius, color luck, fashion, women, every sort of theme you can possibly think of. And it's probably obvious, but someone hasn't read it. It it is tied in with so many sort of, you know, immortal moments if you follow this sport forever. Like obviously in music, you talk about snooker loopy. I know we joke about it, laugh about it, the rom for rap. That's all there. The the chapter on, on loss, you know, focuses very much on maybe sadly for many millions, the player most associated with losing matches than anyone else in the history of the game, Jimmy White, of course, with those six world finals. There's a, being a TV nerd, I love the television 
chapter. And I know it's you, you say in there that very interestingly that you think Hazel Irving may have surpassed David Vine. Now that's her, that's her, that's her quality that you pinpoint, but you, you can't say enough that there are fundamentals here and there are all manner of literary references and some incredibly sort of, you know, beautiful, intelligent writing, but it does link in always to the players and the moments that we sort of know so well in this sport. Hmm. Yeah, that's right. And I guess that's, you know, again, going back to the kind of the philosophy behind what I was trying to do, that um, I was wanting to write about snooker. <laughs> I was wanting to write about um, the history of, of the game and the players and and, and and some of the conspicuous, some of the conspicuous mo- moments. Um, also in other places, some of the, I think, um, underappreciated and under-discussed elements of, of the game. And the, the chapter on women's snooker is, is a good example of that. I think, uh, you know, that um, I was trying to, for the first time that I had seen, tell that history in detail uh, and explore the fact that, you know, Joe Davis is, of course, a sort of conspicuous, immortal legend of the game but some of the names like you know Ruth Harrison and Thelma Carpenter are, are talked about you know significantly less often uh, even though you know Ruth Harrison was was equally dominant um, as a sort of early early genius of women's snooker um, so there are sort of the underappreciated narratives but with the with the stuff that you know the big names and famous moments I think I, I wanted to not just talk about what happened with Jimmy White in all those finals but try to just test out and to explore certain things about um about contrast you can make you know the the, the chapter on victory i talk a, a lot about steve davis and stephen hendry not just in terms of what they did but in terms of the psychology of winning that you see within them and how unusually intense i think um that is that um you know there's something about that that infamous moment after davis has lost against dennis taylor uh, and he's a you know completely grey and standing there <laughs> being interviewed by by David Vine and offering these sort of one syllable responses and being completely de- and he's also talked about how he was just utterly devastated for for months afterwards it took him a very long time to get over that and you compare that with Jimmy White and those sort of sort of preternatural you know, this capacity to to find something within himself, a kind of optimism, a kind of cheerfulness, even just seconds after losing some of those finals against Hendry. I think in 92, when he lost those 10 frames in a, in a row, uh, he said, you know, I feel good even now, you know, which is an extraordinary thing to hear from him. <laughs> Perhaps most famously in 94, after losing the final frame, he, 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 he um, made that comment, you know, he's beginning to annoy me. Um, but, you know, it's one of the reasons why people love him so much. You know, that generosity of spirit, that capacity to to, to lose with a sort of nobility of character and with a humour and with a sense of perspective, all of that violently absent from the personalities of, of people like Davis and Hendry. So I guess that's, that's an example of the sort of thing I was wanting to do, try to explore some of these, um, perhaps these, these sort of, ideas about personality types and about what the psychology of victory and loss might be whilst also sort of talking about some of these famous moments mm-hmm. uh now i probably should have asked this at the start but it's more it's a bit of a backwards way of doing it but a bit more about you if we could um your career how how you got to the point of writing a snooker book and uh the other stuff you've written about yeah so i i guess um my background um is more in in academic writing and, and what I'd written before this uh, was was on literature uh, of various kinds, uh, you know, a book on, on Cold War American poetry, um, a, a, a critical study of, of William Blake. Um, and so that's my background. That, that, that There was that. And then there's the fact that I've, you know, been completely obsessed with snooker since mm-hmm. I was five years old, as I, as I talked about earlier. And so, and so I've always wanted that, especially... Also, given the the point from earlier that that I feel that the library of snooker literature is a is a thinner library than it should be, um, so it's always been in my head. It's always been an ambition of mine to sort of turn to snooker and try to find a way of writing about it in in interesting fashions. So, so I guess that's the context and that's sort of where I've, I've come from um, and, and and how I sort of entered into this particular project. Mm-hmm. And how was. Uh... How has your delving into sort of the snooker community, as it were, 
Um, I feel like they're quite a, a welcoming, receptive community. Has that, has that been your experience so far? Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, a community that's so full of knowledge and wisdom uh, about the game, you know, and just what you, you know, what you see and what you encounter on on social media, you see, you know, that a, a community of fans who who they don't just watch the game, you know, they think about it really carefully and they have sort of debates and discussions of, of various kinds about what's going on. They're, they're attentive, not just to the kind of big name players, but what's happening further down the rankings and what's happening from tournament to tournament, not just the most conspicuous uh, tournaments too. So I, I think, um, I guess I was trying to write a book for what you might describe as two different audiences, because there's that, the, the audience of, of avid snooker fans, mm-hmm. um, and then there is the fact that, well, when the World Championships come round, you get four, five million people tuning in to watch it. Um, and I think not all of those people are following every single tournament. Not all of those people are you know, familiar with you know, players who are at sort of 50 or 60 in, in the rankings. But, but they're tuning in to this kind of significant cultural sporting um, event. And so I guess I, I also wanted to to write something that might be of interest to, I don't want to say sort of fair weather snooker fans, but, you know, snooker fans who kind of who maybe watch the, some of the ma- major tournaments, but aren't necessarily closely following every every detail of, of the game across the season. Mm-hmm. Well, that makes a lot of sense. And, well, we're just, as I said at the top, we're incredibly grateful that you did turn your attention to this sport. Now, I, I just want to give some idea again of the kind of variety here. And I know we, we, I think we mentioned it last time, Phil, but the index is particularly revealing, I think. And <laughs> I'm going to, if you permit me a moment, just I, I've picked the letter P because I think there's a particularly nice variety here. So here we go. This gives you an idea of, of, of just the incredible scope of, the, of this book from Brendan. So it's Pala Cherie. Parnook or Han, Hanassar, Monty, Parrot, John, Perfection, Performance Enhancing Drugs, Perry, Joe, Philbin, Maggie, Phillips, Wendell, Pitchett, Ty, Pinches, Barry, The Pink Ball, Plank, Max, Plath, Sylvia, Plato, Paul, Pop Music, Pope, Alexander, Post Retirement Careers, Post-Truth World, Pot Black, Hound, Ezra, Powell, Mike, Power, Price, Mick, Priestley, JB, Prize Money, Psychological Strength, Pullman, John, The Purple Ball. Now that is a lineup. That would be a dinner party of a lifetime, wouldn't it? I mean, <laughs> <laughs> I think it's pretty obvious how that all fits together. Uh... <laughs> Before we came on air, Brenda, just before, tell, tell us the two you mentioned in tandem, possible double act. Oh, uh, Pinches and Plath. Yeah, pinches of and Plath, of which I'm, I'm trying to think, what, I'm thinking what, what that most makes me think of. It's sort of an old school music hall act, isn't it? I'm off to see <laughs> Pinches and Plath down at, at the, in summer season. Well, you know, I'd buy a ticket if uh, that was one <laughs> um, But yeah, I think, you know, the, the, I, I suppose that, that list is indicative of, of the sort of thing I, I am trying to do in the book, which is to to bring um, the world of ideas, but also you know, philosophical statements and, and, and literature, um, to bring it to snooker and to try to sort of shine a light on snooker through some of this stuff um, in a manner that um, I hope... Um, kind of throws a certain kind of light on the game that hasn't been been thrown before. Mm-hmm. I'd like to ask you another question that I'd be fascinated to hear your answer about generally about the sort of state of the game. I mean, some people are quite negative about it in the future, it has to be said. Uh, some people think that's overplayed. I mean, I think your view would be really interested to hear. what. Where do you think snooker fits into sort of today's sort of sporting landscape or indeed wider landscape do you think we're sometimes a little bit as a community and uh, as a group of sort of fans and journalists a bit too negative i certainly think there's an element of that um and i i, I think in part perhaps there is there is this you know, we're talking about snooker's relationship to its own history this this feeling that fans and followers can sometimes have that in some way we that snooker has has passed its peak um and 
it, although it's obviously true that you know snooker is never going to be you know you know have this sort of central position in um in cultural life like it perhaps once had um it's really popular the appetite for the game is uh is there as it always has been and it, it's there within millions of people um as we touched on a, a moment ago in, in the internationalism of the game you know to have luca as as the, the world champion now is it's a wonderful thing, but it's also emblematic of something that, that actually there are new territories worldwide that, that can be um, looked forward to, I think, in terms of, of, of what might happen. Luca himself has said that he feels that the game is going to explode in, in Belgium, explode perhaps, you know, in Europe more broadly, partly as a result of, of what he's done. Um, so there's all of that. I also, I mean, something that, that um, I had Luke Williams say, Luke, of course, the you know, author of a, of a magnificent biography of Patsy Houlihan, um, which, um, like all the best biographies, is, is it's not just about Patsy Houlihan. It tells a wonderful story of him, but it also is a book on mid-20th century amateur snooker. It's a book on uh, South London culture of that time. Well, it's a wonderful piece of writing, and he was a really interesting figure commenting on the game. And he has made a, a, another point, which is perhaps, you know, in terms of the grassroots root support for the game, uh, in terms of the dwindling number of snooker clubs, um, there are things to worry about. There are um, areas of concern in terms of of whether we are going to continue to do the right things to maximise our support, financial support as well, for you know young players uh, coming through. So I think depending on the angle you look at the game from, there are perhaps different levels of optimism um, to take. But I, I certainly feel that the the appetite for following and supporting snooker is as strong as it ever has been and in some ways stronger than ever. So I'm, I'm really hopeful and I'm really I'm sort of clinging on to, you know, Luca's World Championship win as, as a sign of something really quite electrifying. Um, not just that, actually, I'm, I'm sort of going on here, but <laughs> the nature of Luca as a personality is just such a magnificent thing for the, the game of snooker. Um, you know, he, he's a sign of the future, but he's also... Um, he also annihilates this argument that are oh, that all the characters of, of the game are you know that that's a thing of the past. You've got this this guy who's sort of saying perhaps exaggerating you know the extent to which he's sort of you know not sleeping and he's out drinking till six a.m. before matches and so forth. You know you've got a kind of rock star figure here as world champion, um, and that is a really exciting thing for the game. The nature of Luca as a player. I'm really interesting to see what what. what um, what he does um, in the season to come um, is a, a bit of a tradition of its own that that you know that a new first, well, first time world champion has a bad season after winning. Um, but if anyone can challenge that, I think Luca can. The nature of his sort of laid back personality. So there are reasons to be really excited and reasons to be really po- positive. Although there are complexities, I think. Just on a personal level for you, uh, did you have a favourite player growing up or now? Were you drawn to those rock and roll personalities or were you more sort of the, the sedate side of things? I mean, two answers, really. I mean, my, my idol growing up was Jimmy White and that's not, you know, I'm not alone in that. Um, <laughs> those those finals, uh, you know, sort of revisiting those finals, writing that the chapter on loss. And I remember how heartbroken I was, especially that 94 final. I remember feeling... Uh, when Jimmy missed that black in the final frame, I, I was convinced, surely surely Hendry's going to miss on purpose now because it's too <laughs> wrong. It's too tragic. It's too heartbreaking to have Jimmy lose again. And I just sort of couldn't believe it. No, he's not doing that. No, he's potting these balls. This is, uh, this is, you know, it's just awful. Um, in, in adulthood, the, the, the player, a rather different kind of player who, I, who became my favourite uh, is, is the Sheriff of Pottingham, Anthony Hamilton. Oh, excellent. Who, I, who it, I think is is a fascinating player in snooker history. Uh, you know, a, a real underachiever, an underappreciated player for a long time. But I love following the, the story of his of his career um, and the way that he, you know, improbably won the German Masters in his mid-40s, you know, when it, no one thought that he would ever win a ranking tournament. Um, and so... And it's a different feel following a, a player where, you know, perhaps expectations, his own expectations are limited. But, you know, and if if Anthony Hamilton gets to a quarter final, it's it's exciting news. Uh and so um you know, a, a different kind of feel supporting someone like 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 Kim. I just a, a kind of really 
you know, a really lovely guy, I think, and really, you know, funny and interesting uh, figure to listen to and be interviewed uh, and so forth. So, yeah, so different answers there. Jimmy White in childhood, uh, in adulthood, uh, the great Anthony Hamilton. Fantastic answers for me. Friend of the show, Anthony Hamilton. Yeah, exactly. They're all friends of the show, Phil, you know that. (laughs) Of course, yeah, I don't think there was ever a more inevitable break in the history of snooker than Hendry clearing up when he came to the table. He, he just was, uh, yeah, it was never, he was never going to be. And of course, what just comes to my mind that, you know, that, that he's beginning to annoy me actually came from David Vine saying, what can I say apart from happy birthday? I mean, oh dear. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that was just, oh dear. I mean, yeah, you've taken me back uh, to watching that at York University. I said it before on here. You say, oh, you get over things, but there's a tiny, tiny part of me, and I'm sure you, that won't ever get over that. And you wouldn't want to, would in a way, would you? Because it was it, therein lies its importance, I think. Yeah, and I and one of the things I I talk about in the in the last chapter is, you know, it, it, it's some way it's part of why Jimmy White is so loved. You know, we we struggle a lot more, I think, to identify with the kind of the winners. In, in life, these these figures who ruthlessly and successfully achieve victory consistently. That's not really how life tends to work. You know, it's those who have to struggle with, with failure and disappointment who we can identify with a lot more easily. Um, there's a kind of, you know, strangeness to it because obviously Jimmy White is actually one of the most successful snooker players ever. Uh, he, I think I say in the book that he was still in the top 10. I think he's not quite in the top 10 ranking tournament uh, winners now because I think Sean Murphy's won an 11th and so he's just dropped off. But uh, 10 ranking tournament victories uh, in all of those world finals, you know, he's a player of immense success. And yet we tend to see him as emblematic of this, this sort of noble and tragic failures. Absolutely. No, you summed it all up very well, as you and you sum up everything very well in this amazing book. What 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 sort of next for you then? Maybe we'll wrap up like that. I mean, what what sort of subject are you tackling next? So I am right now working on a, a book on cricket, uh, on the the arts and literature of, of cricket, um, cricket and the English imagination, trying to trace um, responses, artistic and literary responses to to cricket, really from. From some medieval manuscript illustrations, fascinating right. people holding kind of what look like cricket bats. Are they cricket bats? We can't really know, but it's interesting stuff to to think about uh, and sort of tracing things kind of through the centuries to to the modern day. So, so all being well, that will uh, appear sometime next year. Oh, that's great! And um, what we, we, well, I've said this for a while actually, but. We're going to wrap up, but has there been anything that you really would have liked to have talked about that we haven't explored or, or, or mentioned? I mean, please, please do speak up. I mean, we, we just you've just been a, a marvellous guest and we encourage everyone to buy your book. Uh, well, that's very kind. I mean, no, it, it's just it's just a privilege to and I really, you know, it, it, it is a dreamlike phenomenon to come on this podcast uh, and and be able to talk about snooker. Um, this is this life at its very best. So I'm just very grateful to be here and, and to be having a conversation with you. Ah, no, we're not clever enough to, to take clips, are we? We're too we're too stuck in the, the dark age. But that 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 that's got to be a sort of soundbite, isn't it? I think that's got to be the intro to the podcast. If we can rustle up some theme music to go with "This is life at its very best," then that's perfect. <laughs> <laughs> can I suggest the Romford rap as the theme music? Oh, you can, yeah. <laughs> A, a famous hit from yesteryear. Um, Brendan, what can we say? Thank you so much. Will you come back and see us again one day? I would have, it would be an absolute honour. So, yes, please. Oh, thank you very much. The honour's been all ours. And, uh, yeah, echo what Nick said. It's, been, it's an absolutely fabulous read. I've read it pretty much twice now. So, yeah, go buy it if you haven't bought it already. And you can get it pretty much, obviously, you know, available widely uh, you know, among booksellers and, indeed, you know, uh, across various various parts of the internet of course Brendan isn't it and it's a deep pocket snooker the meaning of life so is there anywhere particularly people can get it you'd like to plug before you go Uh, I I think you know um, it's out there in major bookshops and uh, yeah the usual online uh, online uh, sources Hashat UK is the publisher and so um, that that would be one one online place that you can easily find find the book all all the best then and uh, thank you so much for joining us and uh, and uh, we, we wish you well with the sales, of course. Thank you so much. And thanks again for having me on. 
We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Cheers, Ryder. What a marvellous guest there. Brendan Cooper, the author of uh, Deep Pockets, Snooker and the Meaning of Life. Well, um, I, I, I feel... Quite a bit more intelligent now, having having Brendan in my in my company now, Phil. I'm going to go and, uh, well, you know, all these, you know, sports pages I'm often reading, you know, I think if I just get myself into a little bit of, you know, medieval manuscripts, this is where I've been going wrong all these bloody years. Maybe. I mean, I feel a little bit less intelligent, so at least we've both gone one way or the other. But, yeah, no, what a fascinating guy. And, yeah, I'm sure that cricket book will be excellent as well. Absolutely. We should say uh, to, to be, uh, that we've had just a, a marvellous guest there. We have got some uh, some more uh, snooker to talk about. And you are listening here to Talking Snooker with Phil Haig and Nick Metcalf. And we are talking now about the Championship League, which is underway, Phil. A week old, isn't it? My goodness me. And, uh, well, I think you said at the top, it's been some n- nice action, I think. You know, I haven't watched an immense amount about it, uh, of it, but every time I've tuned in, I've tended to watch the quotes-unquote lesser table. I mean, it's all subjective uh, on on the U- YouTube, which is it's available for free on, on YouTube every day, by the way. I've just got in there, searched Matchroom, and it, it just pops up there, and you can watch it every day from, from midday on there. And we should say, you know, there's been some... Some established names, but perhaps one or two slight slight surprises, isn't there? We kicked off last Monday. I know we were on air for that, and that was Ashley Carty and Daniel Wells winning their group. So congratulations to them. And then the story continued last Tuesday with Martin O'Donnell and Chris Wakelin winning their groups. O'Donnell with seven points there, three ahead of Hossein Bafai. Uh, Wakelin with six, one ahead of Ollie Lines. And uh, on to Wednesday, it was Michael White and Robbie Williams topping their groups. Three wins out of three uh, for White. He comfortably won his group. One of those wins over Ryan Day, actually, by three frames to one. And Williams getting through with seven points from his three matches. We say it again time and time, but M- Michael White's a lovely player, isn't he? So never a surprise to see him sort of do well. And, um, you know, we hope that continues. Yeah, no, not at all. Um, Ryan Day probably was the favourite, mate. He definitely would have been a favourite because he's a bit, he's had a lot of success in the right in the uh, Championship League over the years. But, um, yeah, also no surprise to see Michael White do well. Um, yeah, he's. Continued his uh, ascent up the rankings from when he came back on tour and was like obviously sort of falsely really far down. But um, yeah, he's a he's a top player, really, isn't he? Really is. On to Thursday, I think Tyron Wilson and Tep Shire are new top in their groups. Uh, Wilson with three wins out of three and uh, finishing three points ahead of a, uh, a very recent friend of the podcast, Phil Louis Heathcote, was on with us a couple of weeks ago and still a lovely episode that. So if you want to listen to that, please do. Tyron uh, close to one four seven. Phil missing the final pink, so I had to settle for one three four. And uh, Tep Dry also comfortably winning his group, three wins out of three, finishing three points ahead of Florian Nuzla. And then good to see one of the young guys getting a tryout on on Friday. Phil Mark Williams, uh, I think he's from Wales. Looks good, looks the par. He's got a big future this one. But seriously though, thirty second season on tour, and uh, well, he certainly did look the part. Three wins and three matches, only losing one frame, two centuries and six half centuries, and uh, just you know the evergreen, timelessly special Williams and Barry Pinches that made the combined group winners uh, that day with with an age of one hundred, the grand old age, <laughs> and uh, shouldn't shouldn't harbour on that, but they you know they they. they you can't put a price on experience, Phil. Pinches it did very well, actually. Seven points in three matches to finish one ahead of Julian Leclerc. Perhaps you shouldn't have that much surprise in my voice. Barry's been around forever, of course, top player. But, um, but yeah, very much the, uh, the the day for the veterans, that one, wasn't it? And uh, But also, let's just say, Corin and Mark Williams, they they must have been doing a bit of practice, Phil, in these, in these sort of uh, uh, quieter weeks. Well, I'm, I'm not so sure, really. I mean, Williams always insists he doesn't do any, and... By social media, has been sort of jetting around, and I think Kyron just got back for a stag do. So maybe it was just the relaxed nation of it uh, that gone through. But yeah, I mean, it, it's no surprise to say that Mark Williams and Kyron Wilson played exceptionally well, but they really did. They looked really brilliant. Um, 
coming up for summer break. So yeah, they'll they'll want to keep that up. And uh, yeah, it was it was interesting to see. So Barry Pinches is now he's fallen off, so he's an amateur. And with Martin O'Donnell, Daniel Wells, and Ashley Carty, they're all back on, but they were all amateur players last year. So them all topping their group just shows what the the scene is off the off the off the main tour. There's a lot of very good players knocking around. Um, I guess Barry sort of playing Q school and stuff will have helped um, keep him sharp over the summer. But yeah, very impressive stuff. And uh, yeah, I'm the same as you. I sort of watched bits and pieces. I, I didn't realise I had Viaplay Extra, but if you've got Sky, you, it comes with that. So I've watched a bit on there. Um, but it's nice to see some names you don't often see. Watched a bit of Florian Nuzley, he's a good player. Uh, nice to see Louis Heathcote getting a couple of wins. Um, and then a couple of players I hadn't seen before. Jun Jiang, I watched play against Ryan Day. Um, as ever, players that you've never seen before pop some excellent balls and you think, wow, he's going to be amazing. But it's all about the consistency. Um, I watched Liam Pullen, actually, um, in his group. Um, a 17-year-old. Um, actually, it's his 18th birthday in about a week and a half. Um, but he got his first win on tour, beating Anton Kazakov and uh, got a draw against Ollie Line. So encouraging start for him. Um, and I spoke to him a couple of days after that. Um, really committed, uh, hard-working young player, uh, travels to Leeds to the Northern every day from York, uh, and quite literally is every day sometimes, at least six days a week, if not seven. Uh, so he puts in the hours and uh, got no real doubt that he's going to get some good wins on the tour this season. Um, so, yeah, there's an interview up on Metro with him, and there's one with Liam Graham as well, who's starting his Championship League campaign. And as we speak Monday afternoon, um, young Scottish lad, um, who... And I'm going to sound a million years old here, but speaking to them both, they were both in very impressive young men, spoke very well, um, very mature, very uh, committed and excited to get going. But um, yeah, sometimes you speak to some of the younger players on tour, they haven't been interviewed that much, they're a bit not too sure of themselves, but you couldn't say that about either of the Liams. Uh, very confident and uh, nice to speak to. Yeah, I was, I mean, you have to, you have to just sort of laugh and be complimentary or you cry. When I think of myself at 17, 18, I mean, just the the, the, the idea that I'd be able to sort of do anything that well, but let alone talk that well about anything. I mean, I was just, that shambles would be a bit harsh, but should we say half, half a shambles? <laughs> um, that, that, <laughs> they were they were smashing uh, interviews. Yeah, they really did come over very well indeed. Yeah, I've, I say I've watched mainly the sort of the 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 other table on YouTube. But I did put that clip. I don't know if anyone saw it of Elliot Slesser, who seemed very unhappy with the with the table conditions. I think it was Slesser and Victor Sarkis. I watched actually during one. Uh, it was one lunchtime in the cricket. One of those where you know, obviously the Ashes, the Ashes cricket. We shouldn't presume that everyone listening to us is into the Ashes or into cricket, but for us here, most of us sports fans in this country, it's a very big deal. But it did actually take my attention because it was kind of like a. There's sort of a, a bit of a weird energy about the match. Really. There was all sort of complaints and arguments about free ball at one stage. Elliot was kind of complaining about the table, which I must admit, looking at that clip, didn't look the you know the, the smoothest run on that ball. I have to say, but um, yeah, no, it has been nice to see some of the other players. And yeah, good point about about Poe in there. He, I, 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 now, now you say, it, I did see that picture. His brother was there and a few other characters, weren't they? They'd been out sort of drinking, so I'm not sure that. Well, listen. Phil, let's be honest now, and Brendan spoke about this earlier, with the old Luca, they're all going to take the Luca Purcell path to glory now, aren't they? You know, never mind practice, chuck that out of the window, all, all the norms. Did, do you remember, I know it's some, some funny tangent to go off, but when Luca was first talking about that during the World Championship, I wouldn't say it was sort of discussed from Alamut Manus, and to some extent Jimmy White, which is a bit rich from Jimmy, bearing on his past, but but certainly from Alan, it was a bit like, well, it just you could see his mind worrying. He had to ask him, what, what do you mean? Why why not? It just couldn't. It's just not the way to do it. But um, listen, life's a rich tapestry, Phil Hay. Yeah, no, I remember that. That was sort of, yeah, Jimmy sort of looked surprised, but obviously he could <laughs> recognise it somewhere. But yeah, that's complete, like, alien to someone like Alan McManus, you know, not preparing properly, not putting in the hours. Um, but yeah, I mean, maybe that's the new the new way of things. People just going out boozing, not practising much. Hey, if that, maybe that's the way to get young players into the game. You don't need to practise anymore. You just have a few drinks and be very successful. You could see a wave of new players coming in. <laughs> yeah. Well, some good players this week. Nice player. I had a quick look before we came on. Jimmy Robertson in action today, former ranking event winner. 
Uh, Stuart Bingham, former world champion, former Masters champion in action tomorrow, Tuesday in the UK. Uh, Zhao Yulong among the players uh, in action on Wednesday. Ali Carter, another evergreen star of snooker, playing on Thursday. Uh, Robert Milkins, who's had such great success uh, lately, is one of the players that on, coming up on Friday. And then their Saturday play, I think I'm right in saying this, this coming week, so different mm-hmm. from the first week when they had the weekend off. And C. Dry He uh, will be seeing on, on that day. That's the man, of course, who had that stunning run uh, to the World Championship se- semi-finals. So we are missing a lot of big names, sort of superstar names, but there are plenty of of you know, tre- tremendous sort of stars still taking part, and that will we'll enjoy this event. It will continue to meander along, won't it, Phil? And we'll, it will give us good company. There's, we should say there's loads of great sport at the moment, isn't there? Wimbledon's just starting here today, Monday in the UK. The Ashes series in full swing. The Open Golf around the corner. So, with the greatest win in the world, snooker really has to fight for its corner. And I know there's a debate. So we had a couple of cos- bits of correspondence in actually about this, which we'll, perhaps we'll turn to soon. I think we'll have enough pretty much time-wise coming soon for this episode. People sort of say it's, they don't feel it's right for this this event. They don't feel it's high-profile enough. It just doesn't hold their interest. I mean, each to their own. Um, I kind of feel, you know, late June, early July, if you came with a you know, full bells and whistles ranking event, I, I seriously worry about whether the, the column inches and the, and the broadcast interest might be there at a time when there's so much incredible sport. So it's a... An interesting one, a nuanced one. Someone wrote to me and said that I think nuance should be on the on the on the on the bingo card. <laughs> I, like I say it so much. Apparently, I say it as much as gravitas, possibly. Maybe. So that's, that's a turn up. <laughs> but um, I mean, listen, uh, I have to say, n- no real complaints from me. I think it's probably the sensible way to go to have this sort of slow burning, lower key event. You know, there's plenty of time when we come to the more traditional snooker months of autumn, winter, and spring for the for the much more traditional, bigger tournaments, eh? Yeah, and it's so long. It would feel weird if the season almost sort of went on pause so we could fit in a month of Championship League sort of in the more uh, business-endy bit of the season. So, yeah, I mean, maybe there could be like a proper s- s- curtain-raiser, short, maybe, like limited field, here's the season starting, and then this, but then this would happen just straight away afterwards. So, yeah, I spoke to some players who actually quite like it because there's not much pressure on. You can sort of ease yourself into the season. Um, but then I was saying to Liam Graham, because um, it's his first pro tournament, he felt it was a bit underwhelming because he said, if you're not in the snooker world, you wouldn't even really know it's on, which is a fair point from him. Uh, it's a low-key way to make your sort of pro debut. But um yeah, no, I mean, it is what it is, isn't it? And like you said, we're, we're missing some names, but there's there's so many like intriguing-looking groups. I was looking at one, which is sort of table two on Thursday, which is Wu Yiza, Pang Junju, Hamad Mir and Stan Moody. I'd be oh. really interested to watch those games. Um, three of the brightest young talents of the game, and Hamad Mir's a bit older, but he's always very exciting to watch. Great potter. Um, so, yeah, I mean, a group like that, sort of low-key, table two on a Thursday, but great stuff. Yeah, I mean, I've said many times on it, gamble is not really my vice, but I know many people will gamble on everything in snooker, including this, and I imagine the odds for that will be interesting. You, you, you'd be hard pest to, to pick the sort of order of one to four there, but uh, yeah, very, very interesting, and we look forward to the, the Championship League uh, continuing. I think we're done for that now, Phil. Let's move on and say uh, congratulations to Rob Walker, we, we, we should say. He has completed his nationwide cycle and run from John O'Groats to Land's End, our, our friend and colleague, uh, he did it, of course, in memory of three friends of his who have all sadly died recently, and particularly heartbreakingly, a friend of his young son who also died. He raised money for two fabulous charities, the Brain Tumor Charity and the Jesse May Children's Hospice. And the last time I checked, the total was in excess of 32,000. So typical Rob, he managed to get himself you know, pretty well across the media, including once on Good Morning Britain, live in the morning, Phil. So that was, Matt, I think John Higgins on that morning, wasn't wasn't he? Mm. And, uh, who's joining us very soon. We'll remind you of that later. Uh, but uh, yeah, typical Rob. He didn't look that tired. I mean, I get knackered sort of walking to the shops of a morning, Phil. I mean, come on. I'm not, <laughs> I'm not, I'm not quite that bad. I'm, I'm playing up. But but yeah, I mean, come on. He, he, he didn't come across as a man that just sort of... <laughs> Cycled around down the nation, did he? He's, he's something else. He really is. Oh, he's a machine in in many ways. Yeah, and he's an incredibly fit bloke. So uh, one of those things where when he said he was doing it, I mean, if 
almost anyone else I know said he was doing Land's End, John O'Groats to Land's End, he'd be like, yeah, I hope you've been training. But he's sort of been training his whole life. I don't think he did too much extra uh, for that mammoth thing. But yeah, uh, amazing. I know he started at 25 grand and he upped his target to 30 and he's passed that. So um, I've got I've got the Just Giving page up now and it's still open. So if anyone hasn't donated yet, still chance. Um, yeah, for an amazing achievement for a great cause. So yeah, congratulations to Rob. It's been doubled as well, isn't it? Is, is that right if it goes over a certain amount? I think they were matching 25 grand, so it's going gonna, it's gonna to get a big boost. Yeah, so it's going to be a huge amount of money, which is great. Yeah, it really is brilliant stuff. We say congratulations to Rob. If you happen to be listening, and no doubt we'll, we'll, we'll see you in person in the new season and offer our own personal congratulations, I'm sure, on behalf of sort of snooker fans and snooker people everywhere. Well, unlikely here, Phil, I've got a, it's a you know, just started July, but I've got a, a Christmas television schedule here. That's okay uh, for coming up. A bit old school, perhaps. We've got 11 a.m., Noel Edmonds live from Telecom Tower. That's one for the teenagers. Uh, mid, I can see your face. Where is he going with this? Um, <laughs> mid- midday, top of the top of the pops. I'm not sure I should have done this, really. Never mind, I'll start it now. 3 p.m., the King's Speech. 10 past 3, E.T., the extraterrestrial, uh, famous old film. At five past five, Doctor Who. Where I'm going with this, of course, is there's a gap in the schedule, Phil, for a couple of hours in the afternoon. But it could be filled by the Macau Masters. Heavens above. Ronnie O'Sullivan. I need a lot of stamina for that, didn't I? Ronnie O'Sullivan, Judd Trump, Jack Lazowski, Marco Fu and C. Dryhe have all been there in recent days to promote this new event. Uh, we're told that the three more players to be involved will be Ding Wee, Mark Williams and Kyron Wilson. So they're not short of talent and star quality. Um, independent of WST, not part of the tour at all. So if it does go ahead, Phil, it'll be very strange. You know, with, you know, the old turkey and trimmings, friends and family. Excuse me, I've got to go watch a bit of the beautiful table game. Well, yeah, no, it's an interesting one. Um, yeah, that sort of got announced. People sort of caught it through social media. Um, because, yeah, like you say, it's an unsanctioned sort of separate, basically like an exhibition tournament, really. Um, and I did, I spoke to... Uh, a colleague at the WPSA, and I think that's the difference. So, so unsanctioned, there's a bit of sort of, there wasn't entire clarity about that, what I meant, but it basically won't be televised. So our dreams of watching snooker on Christmas Day won't be happening because I think that's the, that's the sort of distinction between what would be, you know, players can go and play exhibitions, can go and play pro-ams and do what they want, really. But as soon as it's streamed or broadcast, um, that's when it sort of infringes onto the the sanctioned event. So um, whoever's in win, the Wynn Palace in Macau will have a lovely old time from the 25th to the 29th of December. But um, we won't be able to watch it from uh, from over here. But yeah, amazing stuff, really, for what is effectively an exhibition tournament. 150 grand for the winner. Um, you can see why these guys are, are ditching their traditional Christmas dinner at home and going off to Macau for the festive period. I'm absolutely refusing to believe that that won't be available to watch Phil Haig. I shall be getting myself set up with a Beijing postcode anytime soon, turning my aerial. to. There'll definitely be a way to watch that, and I'll be tuning in. That's all I'm saying. Maybe no official way, but, um, you know, rules are there to be broken. But it is interesting, isn't it? Because we, we often said, you know, it is a quieter time of year, and actually maybe that's right. I, I like that sort of break and then the Masters coming up in the new year and what have you. I, I think it sort of works quite well. And it feels like another sport that you love very much. Darts has that slot very much for itself, doesn't it, with their, their massive event, Ali Pali. But you never know. You know, it might be if it's something that, you know, there is interest around, even if people can't see it in a mainstream sense, then, you know, um, maybe it's something to look for look for in the future. But but um, it shows that, they, you know, there's the appetite for, for players to sort of play their, you know, earn money in those sort of quiet times so it will it, it, you know will be uh it will be interesting to, to look at and phil maybe we should talk about ourselves now and next week john higgins with us goodness uh keep your questions coming in uh for uh john please we've had some smashing ones in already we'll keep the lines open until maybe about probably i'm thinking about thursday so still time for you to contact us talking snooker at yahoo.com or tweet us at talking snooker and well, we just have to say, Phil, we've had loads of people so excited about this episode. We are ourselves. We can't wait for John to to, to, uh, to talk about his incredible life in the game and uh, it'll be a real treat for us. Yeah, absolutely. We're going to have to be sort of 
this is going to be one of those pre-podcast meetings that we're quite rare for us, but we're going to have to be quite disciplined because I'm sure you could talk to John for hours and hours and hours about his career. Um, but we'll have to we'll have to keep it to a, at least a fairly reasonable length. So uh, yeah, keep the questions coming. We'll have plenty of our own, and yeah, lots to look forward to. Yeah, I don't think he'll be very happy with hours and hours and hours. Yeah. Going I think we have to we have to be quite disciplined, don't we? Which we're very grateful to say that I don't think we said it on here. We said it on social media. Probably should have said it on here about one question each. But we have a a couple that are coming with with those, and that's fine. We are going to have to select one each from those. But most of you have come really nice brief questions, and that that's obviously what we really would like because we, we'll be so pushed for. So many things to talk to John about. We will, will not get your points over. And so far, you know, we've had some smashing, smashing questions. And we really have about, you know, John's incredible life, career in the game and just what a phenomenal character he is. Well, if Mark, if Mark Williams ended to go by his early form, Phil, that we, we won't be writing that famous, that famous class off uh, anytime soon. Uh, we'll be seeing Ronnie for a while, of course, or, or, or John, but uh, John will be fascinating on here. And I think that's it, really. Any other business? I don't think I have... Um, much more here. John Higgins coming up, as we say. Championship League continues. And the bloody ashes. Now, <laughs> that's not going to be a quiet day at the library for you, is it, in Leeds? No, I don't think so. No, uh, going up there. So I was at Uni in Leeds. So I'm going to meet some old Uni pals on the Saturday, um, which will be lively. And then I'll be there on the Sunday. Um, so, yeah, I'm looking forward to that. Last time I was watching a test match at Headingley, Ben Stokes scored quite a memorable innings to beat Australia on the final day of a test. So, hoping for something similar. Were you at that one? Yeah. I don't remember that. Wow. Now, that was that 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 must be up there in any of the great things you've seen in sport, mustn't it be? Yeah, it was amazing, yeah. What a weekend. It was my birthday on the Friday. I was at a wedding in North Yorkshire on the Saturday, then heading me on the Sunday for that. Doesn't get much better. No, absolutely. Well, it's even half as special as that game you saw at four years ago and then we'll be in for a treat in that and uh well i think we'll say goodbye thanks for your company well we had a smashing guest didn't we in, in, in brendan cooper and uh yeah we do encourage you to buy this book uh, deep pocket snooker and the meaning of life it, it's got everything in it phil and we should say you know uh, also luke g williams who, who brendan mentioned and our friend john skilbeck have all written books so we are sure of, of, of snooker literature, snooker books, but not so much in 2023 because they all come out. They're all just basically coming out around about now. So we encourage you to read Luke G. Williams on Patsy Hoolihan, John Skilbeck on the 1982 World Championship, Goody Two Shoes, and this book by Brendan Cooper. Our cup runneth over, <laughs> year of our Lord 23, Phil. Yeah, and I was also very excited to hear Dave Hendon's tease that he's embarking on a on a project to write a book. So that's uh, not out now, not out for a little bit, but um, that's sure to be excellent when it does come. Indeed, indeed, Dave, one of the great uh, voices, and uh, yes, that that is bound to be a, a, a wonderful tome to look forward to. We've got to go. Thanks for your company. Enjoy the test. Enjoy your week. See you next time with John Higgins. Yeah, pleasure as always, and uh, thanks again for Brendan. What what a great guest. Thanks for listening. Keep your thoughts coming to us for John Higgins or for any snooker matter. Talking snooker at yahoo.com or tweet us at talking snooker. For now, thank you for listening in from Brendan, Phil, and myself. Cheerio. Sports Social Podcast Network. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.